0: Welcome to Game Changers, a video game industry podcast brought to you by Convoy. We're a firm that invests in companies driving the future of the gaming industry. In this podcast, we will go beyond the gaming experience and highlight founders within the gaming space whose businesses and thought leadership sit at the frontier of the industry. I'm Josh Chapman. I'm Jason Chapman. I'm Jackson Vaughn. And we're the founders of Convoy. Each month, one of us is going to bring you a candid and open conversation with leaders in this industry. Who are these game changers? What have they built? And what are they doing now? Let's dig in. Joining us today is Michael Pachter, who is a managing director at Wedge Bush Securities, providing coverage of the entertainment software, entertainment retail, social internet, e-commerce, movies and entertainment, as well as gaming for the last 20 years. He's been an influential voice in the financial and public markets around the gaming industry for decades. He's a highly regarded industry leader and the go-to expert for virtually every name he covers and more. This includes publicly traded brands like Activision, Blizzard, Electronic Arts, Nintendo, Roblox, Take-Two, Unity, Zynga, just to name a few. Michael's edge comes from his 20-plus years in equity research and his accompanying deep knowledge and expertise in the technology, entertainment, software, media, and gaming landscape. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Josh. I'm very flattered. That was a nice intro. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'd like to start off every podcast by asking our guests, what are you video games are you playing right now?
1: Ha! Ah, I am back playing God of War which has been out for a while, but I never finished it, the last, most recent God of War. And uh, I guess I still play Animal Crossing, and I still play a lot of Switch games, but nothing new. Um, there's nothing new that I care about. I will play
0: the new Star Wars game when when I get a copy, which should be in the next couple of weeks. What games are you most excited about over the next uh, couple of years, just personally? diablo is the thing that's going to take up most of my time once it launches in june
1: Uh, i i was a hardcore diablo 3 player so i'll try to become a hardcore diablo 4 player
0: and and it's not fast twitch so i can play diablo and and actually be competitive so that will be fun that's awesome can you just tell us how you got into this career and how your career got going and how it started sure i actually was trained as a tax lawyer
1: And throughout school, and I have four degrees, so I was in school for a long time, um, I pretty regularly played arcade games. You know, I actually remember when I went to the University of Florida, I got a master's of law. Um, My classes didn't start until 1 p.m. And so I used to get up every morning and do my homework and then run over to the arcade. And I could spend about a dollar and play for two or three hours. And I did every single day. So I was really a big arcade gamer, pretty good at a handful of them. Anyway, 20 years later, I had been doing M&A for most of my career and I ended up without a job. And a friend of mine who uh, managed money told me that Wedbush was hiring a director of research. So I literally that day interviewed and that day was hired. And then after being the director of research for about a month, I recognized that they their analysts were not as good as they needed to be, and effectively the the firm challenged me to become an analyst and prove that I could do better. And I got to cover whatever I wanted, because I was a director of research. So I was a big gamer, and uh, I just thought video games was an interesting sector. It took me about five or six years before I was considered good at it. So. Needless to say I was not the best analyst on the street the first week and uh, fortunately for me the best analyst in the sector at UBS a guy named Mike Wallace was fired and retired because he had plenty of money and by default you know I went from number four to number one it wasn't like there's five hundred of them uh, but I but I moved up and ended up being recognized and my my
0: edge is more or less longevity and when you Picked up gaming as your sector of focus. Did that cause you to lose any interest personally in video gaming? When you know gaming was not only a personal pastime, but also then was becoming professionally what you were focused on.
1: No, actually, I was more interested. And remember, I started doing this in two thousand two thousand one. The games at the time were either massively multiplayer RPG or were single-player games. There really wasn't any kind of multiplayer shooter game. You know, we were able to string together a bunch of computers running a mod of Half-Life called Counter-Strike, and we were able to play against one another, but it wasn't well-networked. And literally, I started the year that Halo came out, and so we didn't have Halo yet, and that was two years before Call of Duty came out, so we didn't really have Call of Duty yet. And Microsoft figured out multiplayer and rolled it out, but hardly anybody played it. So I was a big single player game player. I loved, you know, Fallout and Max Payne. I mean, I was, I loved single player games. I really slowed down my frequency of and duration of gameplay when multiplayer became the thing. And that's mostly because I suck at it. And by suck, I mean, I'm just not fast switch enough. I, you know, I can't respond fast enough. And if I play good players in Call of Duty, I am dead before I even see them, you know? And I mean, I can, I can function in multiplayer games like Overwatch. You know, I can play Reinhardt and be a tank because I get how to play the game. I just am not good at anything except maybe getting in the way. So I can play that game. But I don't enjoy it that much. I mean, it's okay. You know, I I think games like Apex are interesting because there's so many different characters and so many different
0: skills and kind of the strategy of what team to put together against what other team. When you started covering this and you said 2000, 2001, what was it like to watch Microsoft? launch out multiplayer? Were they criticized a lot for that? Was it a failed experiment that they were trying because technologically the internet couldn't support that at the time? What was it like to watch the multiplayer of gaming emerge across these gaming corporates?
1: I was one of the critics. So I didn't share their vision that people wanted to play multiplayer. And my criticism at the time was that games were an escape. And that even though you know i think their analogy was that we we don't watch movies in the theater alone we go with our friends and then we talk about them afterwards and before and whatever they were saying you do it together except you do it together silently and you experience it yourself silently without engaging with the people with you so i was completely wrong but i was absolutely convinced that the reason people played games was to escape and that they didn't want to interact with other people. So I wrongly predicted that that uh, multiplayer would be an abject failure. And I think what I missed was the liquidity that multiplayer provides and the thrill that you get from a well-constructed game in beating people, in getting a high kill ratio or high player score, that there are tons of achievements. And it never occurred to me, because again, I played Halo you know, back then I thought it didn't work. And Halo, the early Halo was one-on-one. I mean, you didn't string together teams and matchmaking and, you know, four-on-four, eight-on-eight, 16-on-16, the way you do in Call of Duty now um, or Counter-Strike. And so I thought one-on-one was getting old because it was like, wow, no liquidity. You're going to keep getting beat up by the same guy over and over and over again. Why are you going to come back and, and get crushed? And it just never occurred to me that it would become so popular that you would have, you know, thirty million people playing Call of Duty every week, and that they would match make perfectly, you know, because they could track every move you've made, and that they would put you into a competitive match. And I think Activision expected to sell twelve or thirteen million, like the other Call of Dutys had, and it sold twenty something. And no one thought that kind of game could sell twenty million. And all of a sudden, Vince and Jason were due a hundred and twenty-eight million dollar bonus. So Activision, you know, trumped up a reason to fire them, uh, was sued, ended up settling for the full amount. So, you know, clearly I didn't ever expect anything to be that big. Activision didn't expect it. Vince and Jason didn't expect it, but multiplayer blew up and you know it, it's like watching Fortnite blow up. Like, how did that happen? None of us saw it coming. And do we want to give you know, Epic credit for figuring that out? They didn't know. It was a tech demo. You know, do we want to give the League of Legends guys credit for figuring that out? They had no idea, you know, or they wouldn't have sold for $400 million. I mean, clearly they had no idea.
0: Well, that's okay. I might be a a little bit younger than you, but I'm also getting smoked in Call of Duty right now. So I feel the pain. It's truly quite intense. Going back to that 2000 to 2005 timeframe, Microsoft launching into multiplayer, no one really saw that coming. And then as it started to kind of ripple out with Call of Duty, at what point did the market change its mind or did it change its mind really overnight once they saw the numbers like that bonus number you just mentioned for Vince and Jason? I mean,
1: again, rolling back to those years, I remember that Activision, who launched Call of Duty in 2003, embraced Xbox Live and said, you know, our game will work on Xbox Live and go for it. And Microsoft was all in on that, but Activision didn't get paid for it. It was just part of the the deal. So Microsoft was collecting five bucks a month from Xbox Live Gold members, and Activision was getting none of the money, and they didn't ask for any. And you know, Bobby Kodak being the greediest man in in the games industry um, in a good way. Greed is good. Um, didn't ask for any money. Of course, EA, you know, at the time run run by uh, Larry Probst, it was pre- riccatello as CEO. EA pulled all their games off of Xbox Live because they couldn't get revenue share. And then in 2005, once Ricattello was uh, was CEO, I think well, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't until 2007, sorry. Pre-Ricattello still, they came back to Microsoft with their tail between their legs and said, "Never mind, can we please be on Xbox Live?" And that was for, you know, FIFA and Battlefield and whatever else they had. So again nobody saw this as a big driver of game sales they thought it was just microsoft trying to sell xbox live gold and you know unbeknownst to all of us the infrastructure that ultimately became azure you know microsoft was building that infrastructure across the board for cloud i don't think anybody appreciated how smart microsoft was at the time in building out xbox live and that has as you know evolved into game pass so 2005 when ea gave in that was when people started to realize it was a big deal. It really took, I mean, there are some companies that are still bad at multiplayer, Ubisoft. You know, it took, it still took, and Nintendo. You know, it still took another decade before everybody embraced it. And even Take-Two, you know,
0: until Grand Theft Auto Online, I don't think they were particularly good at multiplayer. In that 2000 to 2005-ish era, which is sort of the peak of sort of PC multiplayer really starting to take off, console doing well, but still pre-mobile adoption. Who are the management teams that you think were the most impressive? And then what was a call that you made uh, sort of from your vantage point in equity research that was an outlier call that you were on an island thinking at that time?
1: It really was Activision. and, And I remember the president of Activision Publishing at the time, a guy named Ron Dornink, telling me, we poached the team from Medal of Honor, which was Vince, Jason, and Craig Allen, who was at Spark. And we're gonna build a PC version of Medal of Honor, but we're gonna re it and call it Call of Duty. and we're gonna build a console version. Those guys did it. And he said, this is gonna change the world. And I was looking at him like, yeah, that's just what we need is another World War II shooter game. And you know, the, where Vince and Jason really innovated was modernizing it. So Modern Warfare is the first game that really changed the world, which I think was 07. But that was the first one that really, players just embraced that and said, this is fun. And I didn't see that coming. To me, it was just more of the same and who cared what area you were playing in, but it really, really resonated with gamers. So I would say Activision and, you know, credit to Bobby Kotick, he he makes a lot of mistakes. He makes a lot of personnel mistakes. He's had about 10 presidents of Activision publishing in the last 20 years, but Ron was one of the great ones. And Bobby is, Bobby's good at hiring good people. And I think Bobby is good at listening to his people. So that company refining its focus to Blizzard, you know, plus Call of Duty, that was pretty smart. I mean, they they kind of got out of everything else that didn't matter. I still think there's room for a brand like Skylanders to be revived. You know, I think there's still room for a lot of remasters of all the old fun, you know, Spyro the Dragon and Crash Bandicoot kind of stuff. But but they really aren't wasting a whole lot of time. You know, making games like Gun, which they made in 2005, if you recall, and it bombed. Um, So I think that manager team is pretty good because they got the idea early on that you don't need to do quantity, you need to do quality. And the analogy, I think, again, two good companies, but it's comparing HBO to Netflix. You know, one company makes 30 TV shows a year and wins more Emmys than anybody else. And the other company makes... I don't know, 300 TV shows a year, 500, and wins almost as many Emmys with 10 times the content. You know, which is better? And the answer is they're both great, but HBO is more effective. You know, they they have much bigger hits. That's what Activision decided to do back in 2005, kind of stuck with it. They, you know, obviously Guitar Hero was a big hit, Skylanders a big hit. So they they they've reinvented themselves a few times, but but really now Overwatch Diablo, the Blizzard team really
0: has been driving that company. Let's then go to like that 2007 to 2014 range, right? Mobile gaming enters the stage. What was that like to watch all these companies be forced to at least take a look at mobile gaming, if not pivot into it pretty quickly? What did you notice? What did you see? And... What, what are the trends that really popped out to you, and what was it like covering it on the equity research side?
1: Yeah, and back to Bobby Kotick. Bobby pretty famously said in 2006 or seven, I don't understand mobile, but what I know is that if we tried it, we would suck at it. So I'm going to sit back and watch and figure out if this is really a thing. And if it is, I'm going to decide if we should build it ourselves or buy it. And it took them until 2015 to buy King, so they really they never they never made a mobile game I don't think till they bought King, Plus, oh Heroes of the Storm and uh, Hearthstone for 14 probably something like that, so they, they didn't do anything for the next seven years. On the other hand, EA was all in on mobile back in 2002, and you know they bought Jamdat in 2006, and you know Jamdat was feature phone, you know not smartphone. And if you remember Jammed at Bowling, you would press the buttons on your feature phone to line your bowling ball up, you know, in the lane, and then you'd be able to pull back and let go to spin the ball, and it was just dopey, you know. And that was all Jammed at made. I mean, again, Jammed at was early, and their games were good, but they weren't feature. F- I'm sorry, smartphone games. So you know, EA went into it too early, and To be honest with you, EA barely grew the next 15 years in mobile. What we learned, and it was hard to forecast this because nobody understood mobile back then, is that the skill set for mobile is completely different than the skill set for console or PC. And by completely different, I think the right analogy is television show production to movie production. Console games before multiplayer were... Self-contained experiences, beginning, middle, and maybe they lasted ten or twelve or twenty hours, but it was like a movie, and there was a mission, and you wanted to beat the final boss at the end, and you had to progress through the game to get to the final boss battle, and you won, you, know, you won, and it was over. TV shows are not like that at all. Each episode has a story, but it ends, and you're waiting for the next episode. So. Activision didn't have any of the mobile types working there, neither did EA, neither did Take-Two. So, recognizing it's different, why the need to own them? And the answer really was that the consumer spend was shifting from purchasing games to ongoing experiences within app purchases. And it's harder to make games as a service in console than it is games as a service in in mobile. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's harder? Um, because you're taking an established construct, an established monetization method, like you pay 60 bucks for the game, you don't expect to have to buy anything else, right? So uh, what was that game that Take-Two put out a few years ago where you were, you were fighting dinosaurs? I forgot the name of it, but it, it bombed after one week. Because as soon as you played, it was it was the Turtle Rock guys and San Diego made it. I can't, it, it'll come to me. But as soon as you you download the game, as soon as you played the game, they would try to monetize, monetize. So people were like, I spent sixty bucks, I shouldn't have to buy any more stuff, and that's the problem. Like once you spend sixty bucks, nobody wants to spend any more. It's different if you're buying a, a new map. Call of Duty, which used to be 15 bucks, people would spend that. But if you don't get something brand new and extra, they don't wanna spend any money. And so the exception to this is Grand Theft Auto Online, which kind of required you to buy the game and then figured out a way to have an ongoing experience. But the monetization method for in-app is create a balanced economy where people who have more time than money will grind it out and will earn the stuff they need to, to complete the game. And people with more money than time won't, and they'll buy the stuff. And the balance, the key there is the free player doesn't feel like the whale is getting an advantage on him because he can earn everything the whale can buy. And the whale doesn't feel particularly cheated you know, for spending it because he's got to keep up with the free players. And that is really hard to do. The, I mean, the guys who are good at it, Supercell, really good at it. You know, keeping you keeping that balance, and and I th- actually, to be fair, I actually think that Epic with Fortnite is better at it than anybody, because they they created the concept of the season pass, and they made it so valuable that forty percent of their players buy it, and the and the sixty percent who don't don't care, they don't have skins, they don't give, a shit. and the forty percent who do feel like they got full value for their ten bucks every ten weeks a dollar a week to have a bunch of new stuff like that's fun so that's just brilliant and that's where i really think games need to go but notice i said a dollar a week that ends up being game pass you know that's why i think i think fortnite is training people that subscriptions are okay and you can constantly play new stuff under a subscription so i think that's where the market's going but again mobile mobile's different cuz people expect everything to be free and they understand when someone spends money, and no one begrudges a, a whale if they can earn the same thing. They don't. They don't begrudge
0: the whale at all. I love that point. Let's dive into that a little bit around the evolution of the business model of gaming. Right, we've went from pay per play with the arcade model to then you have to buy the console and the game itself. Right, so just the sixty bucks, fifty bucks, and then we went to free to play. Which had in game monetization. And now we have this Season Pass, effectively a Game Pass subscription model that's sort of, I don't want to say it's emerging because this has been around for a while, but it's definitely taking over a larger and increasingly larger portion of the gaming universe across whether it's a publisher or a console. What do you think is next for the business model of gaming? What do you think dies out? Does anything die out? Is there just room for all five, six, seven business models to coexist? What do you think is next?
1: Well, the, uh, the last thing you said is is the way it's going to be. There's there's plenty of room. My movie TV analogy. I probably should have made a filmed entertainment analogy. So we can be entertained by going to a movie theater and, and paying you know ten or fifteen bucks and watching a movie. That's the console game. We can be entertained by watching TV shows and either commercial broadcast or paying a subscription to cable or whatever and and getting our, our fill, we can be entertained by watching YouTube. You know, there's plenty of ways to, TikTok videos. So there's plenty of ways to make money. And I think that the, there's room for all of them. Box office is not going to grow, but consumption of film is growing. The, the, the fact is that you're now subscribing to Peacock and I just watched, I think it was Peacock. I just watched A Knock at the Cabin or, or whatever, Knock at the Cabin Door. I just watched that movie with Dave Bautista. It was okay, but I watched it for free, you know, and I actually looked up the release date. It was only like 45 days ago. So it's on for free pretty quickly. Disney does that all the time now. Obviously we're not getting Avatar soon, but we'll get it eventually. But I saw Top Gun in the theater and then I watched it again on Epics or something else. These guys are pumping out content to streaming services. And what happens when you have a streaming service? Well, you know, let's just take a contrast between 1940 and 2020, right? In 1940, the only people who could see a film went to the movie theater, period. There was no TV. There was no internet. So how many people saw a movie? And you can go look up, you know, Wizard of Oz or or Gone with the Wind, whatever the biggest box office film of all time was, and divide by the ticket price. And the answer was a couple hundred million, maybe. How many people saw Avatar? Not not this one, the last one. And the answer is a couple of billion. Why? Because it's been available everywhere. So you're gonna be able to monetize content better through all different distribution methods than you than you are just console. And I think, I look at subscription services like Game Pass, the secret is not the $15 a month price. The, the secret is it doesn't require additional special equipment. You have to have an internet connection, but pretty much a billion households have that, or maybe two, a lot and you have to have a display, and pretty much a billion households have, have a display. So if you have an internet connection and a display, you don't need a console. You can play games. Now, I get it, hardcore guys go, oh, the lag, I can't play multiplayer. And right now, that's probably right. You can't effectively play multiplayer. You can play turn-based multiplayer, right? So turn-based strategy games would be fun, but it doesn't matter. It's like, get rid of the $500 console purchase and allow people to spend 15 bucks a month and play 200 games, I think Microsoft's gonna end up with 200 million subscribers, maybe more. And if you follow the Netflix model, which is lower the price in India to get more people involved, Microsoft could have 400 million subscribers. Why not? Can you imagine Nintendo if they delivered their content the same way? How about a Nintendo Game Pass, playable on any screen through the internet, you know, through the cloud, And they've suddenly put 2,000 games on there, however many they have, 1,200, something like that. Can you imagine how many people would subscribe to that? And I'm going to give you that number right now, 1 billion. Nintendo would have a billion people paying them five bucks a month. Nintendo would be the most valuable company on the planet if they decided to go to that model. Remember I said it, I'll probably be long dead by the time they do it, but it's going to happen
0: in your lifetime, not in mine. Well, this will be recorded and we'll outlast that. So it'll be there. Uh, Perfect. They can uh, credit it back to
1: you. uh, Nintendo could be the most valuable company on the planet if they just had the same idea as Disney Plus has. And Disney Plus isn't trying to make money at 200 million subscribers. They're trying to make money at a billion. And they will because the content doesn't cost them any more. They're going to make the
0: same stuff anyway. If they get a billion subscribers, trust me, they make a ton of money. I love it. One of the things I'd like to shift to is over the last 20 plus years, you've had the opportunity to meet personally with the management companies of some of the most incredible companies in the gaming industry. What do you think from an attribute leadership personality perspective has really separated the best management teams in gaming uh, for these public companies from the average or less than average?
1: Wow. You know, they, they, everybody goes hot and cold and every good manager has had his or her share of of slip ups and mistakes i'd say that probably the the worst mistake i've seen managements make is firing all the executives who are threats to their continued existence so i actually genuinely like andrew wilson at ea and i think he's a very capable manager but He was surrounded by people like Frank Chabot, who essentially got fired. I think Frank was one of the most talented guys. The flip side is, I genuinely love Strauss Zelnick, and I love his hands-off, let people just ruminate and create and do what they want to do. Early on in his management at Take Two, I thought he was doing the wrong thing. Now. I think he's a visionary. So, you know, there's an old Mark Twain quote about, you know, when I was 17, I couldn't believe how stupid my dad was. And by the time I was 35, I couldn't believe how much the old man had learned. You know, it's like, as you age, you appreciate how good people are. Strauss is really good. He's really jumped out at me as being great. Lars of Force. Lars is an audacious, just crazy man. He's like, he just has this idea. He's a rich guy in Sweden who just had too much money and had a vision that he was going to consolidate the video game industry and grow this giant business. And he started out buying THQ assets out of bankruptcy. And then he's just kind of cobbled together Sabre and Gearbox and just, boy, what a job that guy's doing. So I'm truly impressed by Lars and I'm truly impressed by Embracer. I have no idea what it's worth. I don't cover them, but I I think that it's nice to see guys like that keeping franchises alive. Whatever you think of Saints Row, it's fun. You know, that, that they keep making fun stuff. They're doing a uh, Borderlands movie, you know, which I doubt will be as big as Super Mario, but it'll be big, you know, and it'll reinforce the the value of the brand. So I, I love that guy too. I think he's doing a great job. And as I said before, I really like uh, Bobby Kotick a lot. Um I think he's smart and I'm I'm sad to see Activision going away as a public company. Uh, I think that Microsoft will manage those assets very well. Phil Spencer's really good too.
0: Looking at the management teams that are sort of up and coming in gaming, uh, from growth stage to the latest IPOs, what advice would you have for series B, C, D, E companies in the venture capital space that are sort of considering going public? considering, you know, selling to a larger group, what advice would you have for those founders and CEO management teams that you also get to interact with as they kind of rise up here? You know, I think that the best person to emulate is
1: Ronald Reagan. And and I say this as a pretty liberal Democrat, Um, one of the most effective presidents of, of the past century. And the reason is that he knew what he didn't know and acknowledged it and surrounded himself with people who were better than him, there's something to that. And I think that every CEO that I've seen fail, they did so because they thought they knew better. And every CEO I've seen who succeeded let his people do what they're good at and let them thrive. That's That's why I like Strauss so much. I mean, Strauss is a super capable guy but he's not going to go in and tell Sam Hauser, you know, how to make GTA six or when to make it. So I think the best advice anybody can follow is assume you don't know the answer to stuff and ask people for their opinion. Always solicit ways to improve. My mantra in my job is I think all the time about where I could be wrong instead of thinking all the time about how to justify that I'm right. It doesn't matter. I, I need to be right, but I don't have to justify it. And if I'm wrong, I need to know it. So I, my advice to any startup, any mid midlife venture is, think about where you could be wrong and solicit you know any kind of advice you can get to make your business better.
0: It's great advice. I think a lot of CEOs and management teams could benefit from that. Uh, a couple more questions as we finish this out. Looking at the current point in the economic cycle, you've seen gaming go through a few different m- macro cycles, right? Through the dot-com bust, financial crisis, and whatever we want to call is happening right now. What are you paying attention to? What have you noticed over the last few cycles? And what's top of mind for you right now as history is semi-repeating slash repeating itself or or changing this time around?
1: Yeah, this is not a cyclical business, and I think that the market just gets it wrong. This is a growth business period, and the growth isn't gonna be linear, so it's possible that you get a boom during COVID, more people at home and working less hard or have more time to spend playing games, and then a bust when everybody's fully employed, and. Worried about whether they're going to lose their jobs or whether inflation is going to mean they can't afford to eat, so they're cutting back on spending. But that's not the industry's problem. That's that's a global problem. Um, the reason it's a growth industry, period, is you know back to four or five questions ago, the methods of distribution of gaming are expanding, and if they keep expanding, more and more people are going to play games. Period, and each new group of players is going to be monetized somehow, whether it's through ads or subscription or in-app purchase or something else. Ads is the biggest opportunity, I think. So new methods of distribution means growth of, of monetization, period. More women playing games, and I you know, I'm not suggesting that it's it's horribly unbalanced, but but the gaming population on console PC it's probably 60 40 male and it's going to be 50 50 just cuz it is and that'll require you know tailoring games that appeal to everybody and that you're seeing that i mean we're getting games like that then you're going to have an age demographic so the 80 year old people who've never played a game are going to die and some newborn is going to play games the rest of his life so you you get you know demographic expansion through more women demographic expansion through an aging population that will play games forever, um, expansion through new distribution methods, expansion by driving the cost of playing games down by eliminating the console through a Game Pass type service. Imagine Game Pass with the ad supported tier that Netflix just launched. You know, So instead of 15 bucks, maybe it's 6.99 with ads. Netflix just told us in the US, they are making more than that delta, you know, 850 per user in the U.S. through ads. What if Microsoft adopted that? And by the way, you know who Netflix's ad tier, ad delivery partner is? Microsoft. So why is Microsoft investing in that? Because they're going to do it. So as you do that, I I think you you'll end up seeing the gaming audience double, and seeing gaming revenues grow high single digit, eight nine percent for at least the next 20 years. That is reminiscent of healthcare in the mid 60s after Medicare Medicaid passed. You get expansion of accessibility to healthcare and an aging population cuz they're healthier and more consumption of medical services. That's exactly what gaming is going to be. Expansion of game delivery and an aging population who's going to consume more games. So I love this sector, and the market is wrong, and they're going to figure it out. And uh, I particularly love anybody who is in that value
0: chain of delivering ads and games. So I think that's the
1: place to to
0: play. What other sectors right now in gaming are are exciting to you? What other trends do you think are going to emerge over the next five years? User-generated
1: content that is monetizable is probably the next biggest opportunity. And five years is tough because it's not a tech thing as much as it's a mindset that the owners of IP have to allow players to modify their IP and, and sell new things. So, I mean, an example of this would be the game Animal Crossing. And if you remember, there was a creator you know, app or part of that game where you could design your outfit or whatever. And there were guys who were doing, you know, like Louis Vuitton purses and, and Burberry sweaters and things in the game. But you know, Burberry is doing it. I mean, the brands were doing it, but you couldn't buy one, you know, and imagine if you could buy a Burberry sweater in animal crossing, would you? Well, I'm guessing they would sell a million every time they launched a new sweater. And even if it was a dollar, If they launched a sweater a week and they only made 50 million bucks that's worth it it's worth putting a few artists on that to do it so nintendo wouldn't allow it but they should you know so i think that's a big opportunity and user-generated content can take any form so it could be level design it could be the democratization of game creation you know somebody's going to come up with an axie infinity frame breaking type game it won't be that but that is all user driven and allow users to to just give them an open platform and if i had to bet it's epic you know that that's what this big gdc reveal was on unreal but I, again it doesn't matter if it's the game or it's the marketplace so i don't want to overuse a, a well worn term but it essentially this is nfts let people create anything they want in a game and let them sell it and charge them a small marketplace fee for the privilege of of you know selling their creations. And uh, honestly, this is how I the, I first got interested in this because Valve has always been open source, you know Valve Valve's uh, software. And I played Doom on PC and I downloaded it through Steam, and somebody sold me tape literally duct tape. So I could take the flashlight that I had in the game and tape it to my weapon. And instead of having to toggle between the flashlight and my rifle and try to kill a demon rushing me that I couldn't see, I put my flashlight on the weapon and I could see him the whole way. And I was like, I think I paid five bucks. And I said, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. That's And that was 2005, I don't know. That was the first time I ever bought an NFT. That was the first time I ever bought user-generated content. And I'm just like, this is brilliant. And here we are almost 20 years later, and you still don't see this, you know, because it takes a, a Gabe Newell type mindset that that's okay. I think Tim Sweeney has that mindset. And all the rest of these guys are fast followers. If they see it working, then it's just like we talked about mobile. Once they see it working, they decide they want to do it too. Ultimately, you know, imagine if Fortnite just opened up skin creation to any artist on the planet. You're going to get better looking skins, period. Because Epic's, you know, team, their Fortnite team of 10 artists or 20 or 50, they're still not... Cumulatively, as talented as the rest of the three, the seven billion people on the planet who might want to play. You know, so I, I think ultimately you're going to get like remarkable creations once this opens up, but I don't know that it'll be in the
0: next five years. Amazing. Michael, thank you so much for sharing such immense insights over the last, you know, decades of scene gaming and amazing management teams and trends and cycles. Uh, thank you for all these amazing insights. It's truly just awesome. So thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure.